Elliot. I'm Gray. And I'm Drake. And you're probably wondering, who are these people? Uh, Steven and Inyash are unavailable this week, so it's me and some friends. And we're going to talk about radical honesty, but first I wanted to let everybody introduce themselves. Gray and Phoenix have been on before, Drake, you haven't. Does anybody want to talk about what brings you here today and what your rationalist history is? Sure. All right. So um, back in high school, I opened up about 100 math blogs and stumbled across Scott Aronson's blog, which led me to Scott Alexander's blog. And from there, I sort of spread throughout lots of different nodes in the rationalist community. Um, and Gray and I have been co-hosting the Minneapolis slash St. Paul Twin Cities meetups for the last Most year, year and a half-ish. Yeah. Um, and got invited to be on here about a week ago and excited to be here. And I'm Gray. Um, I, all, as Drake mentioned, co-run the uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul meetup. I got into rationality from editing Rational Wiki. That was not very well advertised. And uh, I read their article on Eliezer Yudkowsky and found the criticism so <laughs> single-minded that I felt obligated for intellectual honesty to read something he'd written and then found that I didn't agree with the criticism. And then just kind of <laughs> got into things further from there. Who was it you said that wrote that article about him? Uh, the, it's uh, Rational Wiki's article, uh, okay. community article on Yudkowsky. Yeah, I don't think it's attributed to anyone in particular, but it is really um, kind of biting. Yeah, Rational Wiki is a weird thing. <laughs> it's got some good articles that I would actually forward to other people, and then some are very biased. I think it's good at generating biting snark and not very good at choosing <laughs> targets of that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good summary. I could describe the internet at large. <laughs> okay, um, Phoenix... Did you want to say oh, anything about yourself? Yeah. Uh, I, oh gosh. I don't know. I've been in the rationalist sphere for a while. I'm partners with Jess. Uh, radical honesty, or at least my version of it, has been like a thing close to my heart for a while, and like more explicitly so in the last like year, I guess. But we'll get more into that. So glad to be here to talk about it. <laughs> glad to have you here. And thank you for segueing us onto the main subject, radical honesty. So first of all, what is radical honesty? Radical honesty is the practice of training compulsive honesty, which includes refraining from telling even white lies. Uh, the name is actually trademarked. <laughs> is the, it? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know how recent that is, but the basic idea comes from a book slash self-improvement program by Brad Blanton. Different authors have also proposed similar ideas, even Sam Harris in his book Lying recently, and Immanuel Kant less recently, who claimed in his 1798 essay on a supposed right to tell lies from benevolent motives that we have a categorical imperative not to lie under any circumstance, not even to a murderer looking for their victim. So people who are in favor of radical honesty claim that lying is the primary source of modern human stress and say that speaking bluntly and directly, even about painful or taboo subjects, will make people happier by creating an intimacy not possible while hiding things. So, that's not exactly... I, so I'm a proponent of radical honesty, that is not how I practice it exactly, but that's a pretty good definition. Does anybody uh, want to add anything or <laughs> um, have any objections to anything I've said? 
So I, I read through Blanton's as part of preparing for this. I read through Blanton's uh, brief, like princip- core principles of radical honesty um, that you shared, mm-hmm. and uh, I, because I know that you do the mindfulness meditation thing, I thought I would comment on it. I'm getting some strong uh, reminders of vipassana slash mindfulness meditation from the way that Blanton talks about it. Mm-hmm. Is uh, is that something that's uh, more that's obvious, still obvious when you're more familiar with the practice? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it was him who actually directly called it out as being a form of mindfulness meditation or um, living your life in a state of mindfulness meditation. Uh, so Blanton's radical honesty includes practitioners just stating their feelings bluntly, like right from brain to mouth. Uh, and typically in ways that are considered impolite, which, like, Blanton in particular seems to kind of emphasize, like, uh, yeah, you know what, those pants do make you kind of fat. Oh, actually, I hate this band. Can we turn the music off? (laughs) Nah, I don't feel like going over your parents' house. Your mom's kind of an asshole, and your dad's cooking sucks, which, uh, are the kinds of things that would normally cause conflict, and hence the reason why, like, I guess default society tends not to lie, or tends to do the opposite. One, yeah. one thing that I was a little bit confused by reading some of Blanton's stuff is there's a lot of talk about these sort of social situations where you say a thing that might otherwise be taboo or, or left unsaid or where you're expected to give answer A. You just actually say what you believe. But I wasn't as clear on more extreme scenarios like Kant's example where murderer comes to your house and asks if you have a fugitive hiding in your attic. Um, I don't know what Blanton advocates there. I don't know either. I don't know if he's addressed Kant, and uh, that's a good question. Actually, I'd like to look that up. I can't. Yeah. I can't speak to what Kant would have to say about it, or to what Blanton would have to say about it. But I feel like it's consistent with my impressions so far of radical honesty to say, "No, screw you. I know that you're going to misuse that information, and I refuse to provide it." So it's definitely. So there's some other like variants of radical honesty that we're going to get into here, that uh, definitely just make space for that kind of thing. Uh, I get. Should we just start getting into the other people's versions? Yeah. Uh, so Wes, who's I think been on here before, and yeah, friend of the blog uh, within reason. Yeah. Or Wes. Uh, uh, Wes's version uh, is, I think, is a good starting point for like a more practical version of this that you can just like start applying directly in your life, where uh, it is a perfectly honest response to say, "I don't want to tell you that." instead of like giving the information the person actually wants uh, because like honestly like sometimes you actually just need to keep a secret and I try to live my life so that I don't end up in that situation very often but so, yeah but sometimes you can't avoid it yeah that, that's actually one of one of my then uh, this may turn out to be addressed in more of the literature but one of my concerns with radical honesty is that uh, the the biggest chunk of a lot of secrets is the fact that there is a secret so being ha- having a policy that requires you to divulge that there is a secret that would be compromised by your answer actually answering the question is not ideal. Yeah, I think like I think there's an there's an important distinction here still between just saying something that is false in response versus I guess like the like least information response is like the I will neither confirm nor deny kind of thing. And like I would say that 
the I can neither confirm nor deny, or at least I I choose not to answer this kind of question or whatever. Is honest, but it's it's not. It's also not trying to communicate at all, which defeats some of the point. But is still, I think, honest in the most important way, which is that it is not saying false things. Yeah, I'm. So the the term that I have used that I've heard used to refer to this practice is glomerization, which was popularized by Eliezer Yudkowsky, but I think exists in legal circles as a term for this kind of thing, at least judging by a Wikipedia yeah. article. Um, I think one thing that may come up later in the episode is that I like this and use it a fair bit to allow myself to be honest in cases where I would otherwise not feel comfortable committing to telling the exact truth about a question. Um, I, yeah, I'm curious to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I agree that it is... It it sort of avoids communicating in a sense. Um, it is just saying, I will not communicate with you about this. Um, which, and, which is still an honest and use, and potentially useful piece of information, but it also... Can, but it can also be honest and useful for the same reason that it, for the, the reason I expressed concern. Yeah. But, and I think this is something where I have some curiosity about um, how folks who do practice radical honesty deal with this is that I often find myself in situations where I would feel it was much more unethical to commit myself to answering questions where I couldn't have this out of saying, I don't, I, I, I pre commit not to answering questions of this form. For instance, if someone has like conveyed something private to me or might not have, then like even saying, you know, whether they have told me some secret might be potentially damaging. And so I like generally don't answer questions about things that people have told me in confidence. Yeah. um, I'm trying to think of an example and I don't know if this fits exactly. Mm. And now I'm trying to think of a way to say a secret someone told me recently without like, (laughs) Hmm. maybe this isn't the best way to talk about this. Let me go back a bit. First of all, the thing that I liked about um, Wes or Within's, Within Reason's uh, take on radical honesty is that this is kind of a f- performing like radical honesty is an act of vulnerability that you can share with people who have consented to share it with you. Right. I like that a lot, and that helped me kind of get at my like moral problems around radical honesty because I think it's. It's like usually uh, the standard culture's default that people, you know, um, don't tell the truth. You're not supposed to tell the truth about certain things. And you learn what those are at a young age, which things are faux pas versus not. And you're not allowed to ask about them. Ask which ones are which after a certain age, because that's (laughs) one of the norms is that you can't find out what the norms are after a certain point. (laughs) I'm sympathetic to radical honesty on that point, but I do have the sort of... I have a game theoretic concern, for lack of a better term, that's kind of related to what Wes said uh, that that I'll get to, but I I'm I do want to hear more of this, Jess. Real quick, I want to plug Wes's blog post is titled "Not So Radical Honesty" on LivingWithinReason.com. Yeah, we'll link to it in the show notes too, and uh, to Brad Blant, Brad Blanton, <laughs> Blad Brenton, no. <laughs> You uh, you mentioned that Wes seem, regards part of the practice of radical honesty as a trust thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's how I see it, too. It's kind of... With my friends, partners, and people that I know are kind of on the same page as me in regard to wanting to actually hear the truth. Because I think that's important. Um, 
a lot of people actually don't want to be told the truth. And I remember when I was in art school, we would do critique. And I remember kind of like being confused at some of the people that were not able to take criticism at all. And then I remember having like a few works that I did that I worked really hard on that I thought were great and like getting really like actually like taking it personally when somebody would say, I think the hand anatomy there is wrong. And I was like, no, it can't possibly be wrong. I used a reference picture. <laughs> so something looks off about it. And I'm like, you know, you're wrong. And Oh, wait, I'm getting defensive. Yeah, this like resistance to feedback is something that sort of confuses me, I think. Um, I have always been very like pro receiving feedback. And at one point I considered making um, a t-shirt with a QR code to my anonymous feedback page um, and just wearing it around town. I have not, in fact, done that after some friends strongly urged me not to, but um, <laughs> I, I generally try and solicit a lot of feedback from strangers, but my read based on the rate at which people send in feedback to that form is that most people are very much not actively seeking feedback or not looking to self-improve in that particular manner. Um, Drake, don't forget that that sounds like a good website to plug at the end of the episode. Or now in the episode. Yes. Okay. In that case, um, admonymous.co, um, that's a portmanteau of um, anonymous admiration and... Admonishment. Yes. Um, but if you want a, um, a maybe more stable solution, you can just create a Google form that says, give me feedback here. Um, admonymous.co slash Drake is my personal one. Um, if anyone listens to this episode and decides that they have thoughts on my voice or my opinions or anything else about me. And mine, if you have opinions, if you want to anonymously share opinions about Drake that you don't want to Drake to know about, mine is <laughs> admonymous.co slash gray, G-R-A-Y. Excellent. I'm going to make one too after I heard about, well, I didn't know this was a thing until we were kind of doing the post episode chat. And first of all, that made me especially happy that, uh, you were the people that are on this episode. Admonymous.co slash Jess currently doesn't exist, so if you make it before this episode is oh. released, you're probably safe. Oh, well, oh, man. I will try to do that. But uh, Can you, can you check, can you check Phoenix, Drake, as long as we're here? Yep. I just made one, and it is called Phoenix. Oh, sweet. P-H-O-E-N-I-X. All right, so got to gotta corner the market on those nice uh, short strings. <laughs> And I'll, I'll put those in the show notes too. Yay. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've noticed that most people seem not very interested in this, either on the receiving or the sending end. And I'm curious if other people have thoughts on why this is or how to make other people provide you with honest feedback. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I think the vulnerability thing comes into play pretty hard. You don't want randos coming up and giving you feedback generally. I mean, maybe you do, but... Uh, Maybe I do. I think a lot of the time when you're just trying to go to the grocery store or, you know, you're doing whatever you do in your life. And if someone came up to you and was like, hey, your voice is annoying. And also, you did you know your socks don't match? And, you know. And you're wearing three times more makeup than is appropriate. And, yeah, if someone just approaches you in public and starts telling you all these things, you're going to be off put. Yeah, you're like, excuse me, who the hell are you? Like, I, I don't care about feedback from people that I don't care about. I, like, dressed goth or dressed Lolita for a while because... This was me sending a signal that, hey, if you're the kind of person that thinks this is cool or interesting, you can come talk to me. And if you are weirded out by this, then don't come near me. Uh, that's, I don't know, I guess visually the best way I could. Yeah, I think kind of the use case that I imagine these sort of feedback forms, um, the, the sort of social role that I imagine them filling is people who are 
not so on board with radical honesty that they can walk up to you and let you know that, um, yes, this thing looks terrible on you or such and such, but where there might be information that you do want to know, even if they aren't comfortable saying it to your face. Um, and I feel like I ha there are things which I am sufficiently uncomfortable with telling people directly that if everyone had these forms, I would use them a lot. And I expect that I'm not, like, I expect that I'm reasonably typical in how many such opinions I hold of people, but maybe not in how willing I would be to tell them anonymously. Something this is reminding me of is I used, I had a Tumblr for four or five years. Uh, I'm not sharing the URL, it's old. And I remember a lot of people would, well, the, there's um, anonymous feedback that you can turn on or off. And there was definitely a level of abuse that you would start to hit that was kind of, if you became really popular, if you had a lot of followers, then you start attracting a lot of anonymous abuse, just regardless of what your political opinions are, what kind of, whether you're a content creator, I guess if you have anything objectionable, people will find you and abuse you. Yeah. Which would be something that I would worry about. Although one thing um, to note about Tumblr's platform for people who are not familiar is that its anonymous feedback can be replied to and made public. So you mm -hmm. sometimes can do this with a performative aspect and hope that you bug the person you are talking to enough that they reply to it and thereby make you famous. That, that actually connects to, I think, what I think is a big part of people's general resistance to using anonymous feedback forms that are not like that, um, is that there's not a lot of sense of like, uh, like closing the loop on this interaction. You like you just submit a thing and it just sort of goes into a pile and then you don't know what happens with it. Uh, and and then I think also there's a bit of a, at least for me, even when it feels like real feedback, I I still feel kind of passive aggressive by using this system. Sorry, I th I think that may be a uh, an artifact right now of how much of how comparatively socially rare it is. If there were a default, yeah. if there were an expectation that you could communicate directly with anybody and share uncomfortable truths or whatever anonymously. I think that people would do a pretty good job of separating them and the, the overall throughput of personal communication would increase. For me, it's it's probably the case that anytime someone sends me anonymous feedback, I would be just as happy or happier to receive it directly from them, but that I assume other people's preferences are such that they prefer to send it anonymously versus in person, and I would rather receive it anonymously than not at all. And on the other side of it, if there's something I'm not comfortable telling someone at all, even if it's passive-aggressive to or sort of at least it is passive um, to tell them this thing anonymously that I'd rather do that than just leave them in the dark. Phoenix, I was going to ask what you meant when you said that you feel passive aggressive, by which uh, you, you feel passive aggressive by commenting on someone else's or by creating a comment box for someone else to put comments in. I'm putting comments on someone else's. And I think, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to put my finger on why that is exactly. I, th I think because it's not an interaction and that it's like sort of, it's a one-way thing that it, uh, this is the kind of thing that is, like people often resort to using this when they want to do a thing that like they don't feel like they could do face to face because it's passive aggressive uh, or like because or like they want to be aggressive but not in a way that actually re requires an interaction 
Uh, and for some reason, my brain just sort of jumps to that as like, I have, okay, I have to actively choose to not be doing that when interacting with this. Uh, Drake, I was going to ask if, um, as the user of Admonymous, is there a way that you can reply to feedback? Or is it just kind of a one-way stream? Uh, you can do this um, sort of indirectly by saying, if you want me to re reply to you, leave me some contact info. Um, but yes, there it's designed for ease of leaving feedback, which means that there is no login or other way to store who you are when you leave feedback, other than to say, I am this person. I would love it if there was an easy way to make like a temporary, um, you know, like an additional obscure email or do some clever cryptographic scheme. But in practice, I think any way of doing this is too much hassle to expect anyone to follow through with. As long as you're talking about it, though, uh, you should explain the uh, feedback compensation procedure that you and I developed. Leave a, leave a charity. I'm not sure I remember this. Oh, so um, I'm putting this up because Drake asked, Drake solicited my help coming up with it for his own admonymous. Um, if well, one of the, the things that you'd like to do is encourage ah, people yes. to leave novel feedback. So uh, Drake's got a notice, which I'm copying after contributing to its writing that says, uh, if you give me novel personal feedback that I've not encountered before and name a charity, I will donate $5 to it. I love that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good addition. Um, if anybody wants to make a new social network, I was just thinking I would totally join a website that's like Facebook, but it's specifically for replying or sharing uh, your feedback <laughs> that you receive from other people in your comments. If you want to be all trendy had, uh, and get on the blockchain, there's mines. <laughs> there's what? Uh, there's a blockchain-based social networking site called Mines. I don't actually know much about it except that it's blockchain-based, but it does exist. <laughs> all right. Good well, I know there's know. also, I don't know if it still exists, but probably the blockchain-based dating website Luna. Is it called Luna? <laughs> oh, uh, yes, it is. Um, although I think it was it was once functional enough that I made a profile on it, um, but no longer seems to be in that state. Um, mm, the website exists, but is not loudly proclaiming where you can go sign up. So I take it that it is in a state of hiatus at best. Um, oh, I signed up for the beta. I, I don't imagine it would still be in beta, but that might be an interesting thing to check. I, I don't know. I Go Google Shopping was in beta for like 10 years. So... Uh, Hold that thought. I want to take a second and uh, possibly jump back to the main topic here. Uh, I appreciated this sidetrack about Admonymous, um, but I think there's still more good stuff to say about, like, I especially want to hear about how people actually implement honesty in their own lives and, like, ways that differs from these systems that these people have written about. Yeah, thanks for getting us back in, Jack. <laughs> Um, I, I have my own quest. I, I, I know of other social communication protocols, including the one that I usually use. So I will if, get in a question somewhere about how it compares. Um, Jess, or, you know, I could just do that here since I've set it up already. Uh, Jess, how do you find, wh wh what do you see radical honesty comparing to operating under Crocker's rules? Uh, can you summarize what that means? Uh, Crocker's rules for means that you, you've agreed not to you are agreeing not to respond in strong negative ways to any information that people provide you in the hope that you will get more honest information than if people filtered for the uh, filtered uh, against the risk of insulting or otherwise upsetting you. Oh, yeah. To quote um, 
declaring yourself to be operating by Crocker's rules means that other people are allowed to optimize their messages for information, not for being nice to you. Yeah. So it's it's not a license. It's not. It it doesn't ennoble um, sending possibly insulting information in the way that a weak man of radical honesty seems like it might. But it does mean that you have licensed other people to not worry about insulting you. I think that I would be down for trying that as a social experiment with my circle of friends. Uh, and then maybe expanding it if it seems to work out well. I just, um, I kind of feel like the way I would do radical honesty is there's a contract between me and this other person that you're not going to use this as a form of abuse. And if I see somebody like breaking that contract, then it's like, well, you've lost the privilege to do radical honesty with me. And that's how I would respond to like the Kantian uh, issue of like, what if, you know, someone's looking for the Jews hidden in your basement? Right. <laughs> like clearly that, that <laughs> no, I'm not doing it with you. But even just like some rando that I haven't met or gotten close enough to yet. Um, I don't know if this is going to be some sociopath who just, gets off on insulting people. Those exist. So They're not that common, but uh, I would want to do it in my in my like circle of trusted confidants. And maybe if it became more widely known and accepted uh, outside of that, but... So how large is this circle of trust? Like what's, what's around the threshold to, to reach this point where sort of you are, you are treating this person as someone who can engage in radical honesty um, and be trusted with honest feedback. Uh, honestly, I tell them I'm someone who likes to tell the truth. Uh, I like receiving direct criticism. And if you would like to also do that, like I feel like I have a better way of phrasing this when I meet people. It's just that, uh, yeah, brain scattery Sunday. Basically, yeah, I check with the other person, like, Hey, does this form of conversation sound appealing to you? And would you like to do it? <laughs> and if they seem down for it, then that's it. Like, that's basically it. Yeah. I um, found this page describing Crocker's rules. And uh, the sentence, Crocker's rules means uh, that you have accepted full responsibility for the operation of your own mind. If you're offended, it's your fault. Uh, I just appreciate how much that is in line with the courage to be disliked whole thing that I'm sure we'll talk about on another episode because I keep wanting to, but, um, that does sound like a, that I, I've, I'm uh, grateful for the copy of that that you gave me and I have been flipping through it and I like it. <laughs> Excellent. We'll eventually get to a <laughs> courage to be disliked episode. Uh, in, in terms of, uh, like who do you, who does, who does each of us or like, who does one do this with? Uh, I liked uh, some things from Wes's article again that this is especially important for intimate relationships and like personal relationships that like are ongoing um, and is uh, in the explicit list of exceptions for like where it is not actually like ethically like important that you stay honest uh, include coercive relationships where like if you're in a relationship where you don't have a lot of choice about being in that relationship um, whether one of the examples he gives is employment because em employment is 
coercive in some ways. Uh, or you know, like if you're in an abusive relationship that you're trying to get out of, or like uh, a family relationships are a little bit coercive sometimes in that like your brother is your brother and won't stop being your brother for any reason. <laughs> uh, and that in, in relationships where you're stuck there, uh, it can be acceptable to use dishonesty, but you, it's really best to save that for like trying to exit the relationship as like a way to protect yourself. Um, and like only if, if you like really have to, like if you really like can't get out of this relationship at all, uh, and you like need to use dishonesty to, to protect yourself, then maybe you can like use it in an extended fashion. But we should be generally skeptical of uh, our motivation to do that because people tend to round in that direction pretty frequently when probably they shouldn't. Uh, being, being dishonest when, like thinking they have to be dishonest in an extended fashion when really they either don't have to or they should be leaving the relationship. Yeah. One one frame that I thought was interesting in this blog post is sort of honesty as consent and sort of like that if someone is being honest with you, then you have this, there's nothing that you are sort of having this interaction with them without having consented to some fact about them that you don't know. And a relevant quote to um, this notion of someone who's in a coercive relationship with you is that, um, once a person has been dishonest with an intimate partner and refuses to correct their dishonesty, that person has robbed their partner of the ability to consent to continue the relationship. The only ethical choice is to end it. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that framing. I, I agree. This, this, um, people's tendency to rationalize dishonesty in this sense is a, a definite blind spot. It, the, there's a definite tilt in priors in favor of this being an acceptable exception to telling the truth um, for a lot of people. A lot of the time but I have I guess I have weaker priors than a lot of people about the honesty of the general population so I guess the while, while I'm sympathetic to the offering a conspiracy uh, paradigm where you you open with trust in that fashion sometimes that's too costly to justify um, where I think about it in the other direction is and uh, this, this is going to sound like a very dismal view of the world, and I'm aware that it is. And the reason I like dealing with other rationalists is that I don't have to think about this very often. But there are enough people who benefit by dishonesty that a, an excessively comfortable habit of honesty with, default, with the default person may uh, render you vulnerable in a way that you aren't willing to be. Um, to... Yeah. I, I, I'm going to tie together two bits of Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality to try to explain this. Um, when, uh, when Harry meets Snape and reflects on a lecture he got from Professor Quirrell about just first-level deception, lying, no, I, I didn't take the, co the cookie out of the cookie jar. Second-level deception, uh, when a parent, hoping that they can catch the child red-handed and thereby get some greater repentance, would lie about believing that the cookie was not taken from the jar. And... The, you can get third levels of deception where you want your second level deceiver to think that they successfully fooled you and so on. It gets really, really complicated after about three levels. Um, that, that's, that's part one. You do, there, there's deception and deception about deception. It's a complicated enough subject that you need, that it behooves you to be up on it. Um, 
The second half of this is uh, Lucius's remembered lecture to Draco about the rule of three, where any plan that requires more than three things to happen is doomed to failure. And since only an idiot would come up with a plan that was literally as complicated as possible, the real maximum is two. So <laughs> my, my philosophy on that is that uh, so you, it seems imprudent to be as defenseless as possible against other people's deception. First level deception is inadequate to protect you from deception. Second level deception only protects you from people who can't protect themselves. So, and since it seems foolish to be as defenseless as you can, as you think you can get away with, the real minimum is third level. So I think if you, if you, if you're in a business that requires this kind of thing where like there's all, I don't know, like politics is the obvious example. If you're, if you're in a situation where there's like a lot of backstabbing just sort of like in the nature of the work you're doing, um, I think that you're you're going to often end up in situations where like an interaction is coercive in some way uh, and or like you're you're having to do things sort of in self defense which is the one of the other examples Wes gives of like when sometimes you you have to do this and it's to like defend yourself or someone else so, like like with the murderer coming to your house example and that i personally solve this by just like I just hate being in those kinds of situations and I avoid them exactly. <laughs> really hard. Uh, I would, I would be a terrible politician, for example, and I would never want to do that kind of work. Uh, and maybe this puts me at some kind of disadvantage, but I think that the life that I live instead is pretty good. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. The examples that Gray was talking about, um, or the, I guess, illustrations from uh, Methods of Rationality are kind of part of, or like, yeah, a large part of why I want to do it in general is just that I don't want to have to keep all these levels of deception in my head. I'm not good at it. Uh, yeah, there's... Yeah, I suck at keeping secrets. A... I suck at telling lies. <laughs> and it's exhausting. If other people want to do it, then, like, that's their choice. I'd rather not be in a relationship with them. Yeah, there's a post. They probably don't want to be in a relationship with me. There's a post by um, Eliezer Yudkowsky um, talking about honesty um, and sort of about glimmerization and ways to never emit literally false statements um, in which he says, it's good for your soul. Um, and that, I think, resonates with me that it feels more... Um, there, there, it feels like there is some deep level on which, like... Um, I'm just more comfortable with myself if I am in situations where I can just be honest with everyone that I'm talking to, um, which for me is most situations, um, when I'm talking to close friends and such. Um, but yeah, in these more coercive environments, like with, um, for me as someone in college right now, um, dealing with like school forms and things, there are boxes where I need, it is expected that I say this thing and it is not expected that it be true, but I have to emit certain word patterns and. I don't know how to feel about that. I I agree with I agree with the assessment that it's uh, that a world in which I you didn't have to keep track of up to three minimum three levels of deception at once would be strictly superior. But it's not the problem that I have with this, as with uh, fixing a lot of 
social norms is that this is very nearly an evolutionarily stable strategy. Um, if when, when the baseline includes these various levels of deception, there's a limit to how far you can get without participating. Yeah, I, I like I have in my notes that I'm I'm tempted to say that uh, living with as much honesty as possible is like actually better for most people, but I I, I suspect I have some motivated reasoning there, and that uh, dishonesty for me personally is just very difficult and very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily the best strategy for everybody. In the in the vein of never telling, never issuing specifically false statements, and I'm sure Eliezer is aware of this one because he's read enough fantasy. But I actually learned about it from Stephen. Um, the Aes Sedai in the Wheel of Time, who are prevented from ever saying anything that's specifically untrue, so dealing with them is incredibly frustrating because they have long lives and they've a good chunk of their communication is spent cultivating ways to disguise the exact truth without ever having to say anything specifically false. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah um, go ahead, Jess. I was thinking, uh, I was just brought in mind of Pact, which was the web serial that the author of Worm wrote after Worm that takes place in a world where magic exists and magic users and magic creatures are forbidden from telling lies, but not from hiding the truth. So a lot of the story is based around uh, the difficulties of having to live like that. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that appeals to you. I, I might, I mean, I, I've seen enough good from Wild Bow to have uh, strong priors about its quality, so I will have to pick that up. I, I think uh, an important part of the way I see honesty here is interacting with someone in a way that's intended to give them a wrong idea, even if you're never saying anything that's false, is also dishonesty. That it's about like whether you want the person to have like correct ideas in their brain or not. It's sort of at the, the core of the spirit of it, I think. Yeah. That seems like a reasonable assessment. Um, the, there's certainly plenty of discourse on whether allowing someone a false belief is different from lying, and I get always get the feeling that it's extremely self-serving to insist that there's a difference. But yeah, I, I guess in this case, I'm just sort of like d defining dishonesty. I think I'm I'm mostly just stealing this from Wes, honestly. But uh, defining dishonesty as a term to include lying and also these other things that make people believe false things. Yeah, withholding the truth or saying things that are technically true but misleading. Yeah. Um, something else that I forgot to bring up when I was going through the original descriptions of radical honesty. Um, Blanton's uh, idea of radical honesty includes compulsive truth, as in you're not supposed to just say nothing either. If a thought comes to mind, you're supposed to say it. I remember... Uh, I think it was like there was a magazine article it might have been time or something I think it was with him or somebody else who was a famous radical honesty user and they were saying yeah you know if I walk in the office and I see a woman with nice tits I'd be like hey nice tits or like <laughs> and it's just things that clearly like people I, I forget the way Wes phrased this uh, maybe you remember Phoenix but it was something like 
actually like a lot of people don't want to just have you spewing the truth at them like either it's annoying or it's tmi (laughs) or that there are contexts where you just really don't need specific truths presented to you right now yeah yeah like the the line from the the summary section at the bottom of wes's article is uh where a person does not want honesty there's no need to be honest with them that like if someone doesn't want to know something you're not uh like violating their boundaries by not telling them the thing they don't want to know yeah i like that framing of radical honesty as telling people like things that you think that they would want to know (laughs) or i don't know that that's because it, it generalizes to so many other situations in life, poker seems like a good like a good example of that. That's not a case where anybody's expected to send honest signals. Everyone oh, yeah. everyone expects to be lied to, and everyone knows that everyone expects them to be lying to them. So, the yeah, there there simply isn't any force pushing in the direction of honesty in a case like that. Yeah, and I think like entering a situation like that where like everyone knows that this is literally a game about lying. Uh, Like, obviously that's what you're in for. You shouldn't expect people to be doing this. I wanted to say something about the uh, thing we were just talking about of only telling people things that you think they want to hear and that my, my personal version of that, I take that a little bit further in that if I think someone would want to know something, I, I, I feel like I have to have a really good reason to hide it from them, uh, to not tell them. Um, and that I think, uh, hopefully I'm not misconstruing Wes's position here, but that uh, in that kind of situation, uh, at least according to Wes's rules, you can also just decide whether you want them to know. Uh, but I, f- I just feel like I'm hiding things from people all the time if I don't have like a slightly higher standard for that of telling people things I think they would want to know, even if I'm a little bit uncomfortable with telling them. How about, like for example, you have a friend who's just really obnoxious at parties and their voice is very loud and they talk over everyone, and you think that they probably are going to get hurt if you tell them, hey, like this thing that you're doing kind of sucks and I wish you would stop, but then also you notice that this person has been going, like, why don't people like me? <laughs> hmm. That's one of those cases where I think it's a bit where you you have to kind of gauge, is this the kind of person that can hear feedback and will not take it personally, but will realize that I am their friend and I want to help them improve at something and that they will want to improve at that thing? Or is this somebody who's just going to get defensive about it think that you're attacking them and not actually change so what's the point for me personally i think there are like maybe five people where i would tell them this unsolicited and many more where if they had actually asked why don't people like me that i would give them this feedback yeah i think this is this is an interesting point and i think also slightly different from what i was trying to talk about which is i think the thing I, i mentioned mostly applies to like I know someone would want to know this thing about me, but they like wouldn't think to ask. And also it's like something that like maybe puts me in a bad light or uh, is, is like a little bit disadvantageous to me for other people to know, but I know that they would want to know and that I often will share those kinds of things anyway, just because I think it 
things work out better when I do that, and so I don't just feel like I'm hiding that thing all the time. Maybe a, is a central example of this something like uh, being attracted to a person who you don't expect to reciprocate it? Oh, man. So that's really a specific topic I wanted to mention at some point of like places where I have difficulty with this. Um, that, that might be a good example. Uh, hard for me to say because this other thing sort of takes precedence in that I have traumas around people reacting very, very badly when I've like expressed interest and intimacy. And so I am generally terrified of telling people that, of like expressing any interest. Uh, so that's a place I struggle with. But I think like, uh, like for some, the thing that keeps coming to mind is sort of like having a dark past kind of things where like knowing that you've done some terrible thing that like probably isn't like who you are now, but it's just like a, a context that can be useful for, for people to know sometimes. I think for, for me at least, and I think I'm at least somewhat typical here, my preferences for knowing things yeah. about people is, has appended to it so long as it doesn't cause them significant emotional distress to transmit this information. I definitely have have also had issues um, figuring out how to communicate attraction properly because the there's a tendency in at least some circles for that if it's not reciprocated to be taken as a slight somehow. And I have huh. I have seen people suffer significant social consequences for that when it turned out to not to be unrequited. I still don't yeah. know exactly how to communicate that sort of thing properly outside of. Uh, narrow social context where it's expected that you communicate that you communicate it up front. Yeah, and I think this is one of those things where, like, I know that I struggle with this a lot, but I still I still strive to be more straightforwardly honest about that kind of thing because when I see other people doing it, it seems to be really good for them. Uh, it it's just a lot of like terrifying work to uh, get there from where I'm at. <laughs> I also think in the case in the case of potentially negative things about yourself that you that that you would want divulged like you, you wouldn't keep them absolutely secret but you think they maybe cast you negatively enough that you wouldn't be inclined to throw them out up front I, I'm sympathetic to the view that disclosing that sort of thing is good but on a meta level I think that if part of your means of communicating with someone for example that you wanted to take on as a romantic partner is to communicate everything about you immediately that might make you undesirable, that's going to make life difficult for you. I have actually used that as my strategy when I date people. Uh, I don't do it as much anymore, but for a while there was a desperation of trying to explain to people that, like, actually I have a lot of these neuroses that are difficult to deal with, and if you're not going to be cool with that, I would like to know that up front. I think I've gotten better just picking people who have the same neuroses as me, so I don't have to communicate it. But uh, I have actually, like, hey, like, on, on my first date, been like, so, you know, I have anxiety disorders. Uh, I might have a panic attack randomly. I get really irritable if I'm trying to read and, you, like, just listing it off. Like, <laughs> here's the list of things that you should know about me. I think this is the kind of thing where, like, there, there is uh, a thing to be said for, like, giving good first impressions, I guess. But I think that the the penalty for like sharing a bunch of these negative things about yourself 
like pretty soon in a relationship is probably much lower than you would think. Um, I personally space them out when it's like relevant to context. Mm. Cause I think like you also want to give someone an accurate impression of you. And if you only just say all of the terrible things about yourself, that actually isn't helping give an accurate impression of you, but I, uh, hiding them forever isn't either. There's also maybe a question of norms where if people expect someone to exaggerate their good qualities in describing themselves for dating, and then they see you list all of your bad qualities, they think, wow, if this is their, you know, times two goodness version of themselves, they must be really... (laughs) One of those signaling equilibrium things we were talking about yesterday. Yeah. A public service announcement, or I've mentioned this to you, Jess, already. Um, when I finish up legal systems um, for my own, in my own podcast, the next uh, project will be Eliezer Yudkowsky's Inadequate Equilibria uh, in podcast form, and Drake is providing one of the voices for that. Hey. Cool. You heard it here first, unless you said it somewhere else. I said, I said it at <laughs> Solstice, it so there's a good chunk of possible okay. audience that knows already. Well, if you didn't hear it at Solstice... Uh, all right we're talking about radical honesty in relationships uh and something that i wanted to get to was uh i am in the polyamory community so when earlier you were asking about which friend groups or which like social circles in particular i use this kind of relationship style with definitely i think it's for me like this is the only way i I can do polyamory (laughs) or even like Going a bit further, this is the only way I would want to really do it, a romantic relationship ever. So I'm yeah. I'm completely sympathetic to that view. Um, possible eggplant here, uh, depending if you think that they wouldn't be comfortable having it discussed. But I know that Wes has Wes insists on disclosing this particular fact up front about himself, and finds it very frustrating when, even in a forum like OkCupid, okay where that's information that's put right in your face. Um, people still don't read it and know and then act upset when they find out about it. Yeah, I am currently in a monogamous relationship, but certainly have found that it would it, it would seem very hard to make a healthy relationship work without some level of trust and ability to like know that you are communicating only honest things to your partner in at least all, all meaningful respects. Mm-hmm. Something I find so frustrating is... Uh... I think you see this in a lot of, like, rom-coms or even commercials where, what is it? There's this, like, cliche about relationships where if your wife is asking, does this dress make me look fat? Obviously, you're supposed to say no, honey, of course. And that seems to be a lot of people's relationship model that one of the duties of being in a relationship with someone is to, like, boost their ego even to the point where you're lying to them. It seems very unhelpful to me. That, that may That's an exaggerated feature of the formula rom-com plot, though. As is other as are other forms of pure of poor communication. Um, my attitude to that sort of movie plot is Tom Lehrer is what Tom Lehrer said. Uh, I think personally that if a person can't communicate, the very least he can do for everyone else is shut up. <laughs> Maybe that's why I don't like the romance genres. That it is so much like so much of the conflict comes from miscommunication. It doesn't have to. I've seen good romances, but like that's where the conflict is coming from, something else. But so often, even comedy in general, without the romantic prefix, there's this funny joke where these two characters are just screwing up, and if they had just talked to each other, none of this would have happened. Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap with that and the just doing poly in general. 
and that a, a lot of rom-com problems would just not be problems if you're like poly and doing it well and I think, I think these are very similar because being poly very strongly requires good communication and like being very open and honest with each other in that like I it's like there's a lot of issues around jealousy and like being attracted to people other than like your primary partner like especially in mono things and like the way you get around that is you just talk about it like you don't hide that you have various feelings you like actually discuss it with your partner uh, and this makes it like actually possible to work with these things and I, I think that like a lot of the things that you have to do to do poly well, I personally think are also things you should be doing in mono relationships. It's just that the cultural structure of mono relationships gives people permission to not do that. Yeah, I don't even like the word jealousy. I think insecurity is usually a more accurate word. Yeah. Like, it's not that uh, I want you to not date that person. Like, uh, sometimes it's more just I don't want you to leave me or I don't want to be getting less of your attention or love or resource. I think the the... The fact that Polly has strong, explicit uh, communication norms around relationship structure probably goes a long way to averting that. Um, it depends on what style of Polly you're practicing, too, because there are different styles. But yeah, the, non non hierarchical stuff. I think you would you would definitely get around that for the for the most part. Um, I, I've gotten that sense elsewhere, though. There's a, a YouTube book reviewer I like who did a video about why she doesn't read anything by Jane Austen. And her explanation was, well, every all of the conflict in a Jane Austen story comes from bad communication norms and stupid norms about who's allowed to interact with whom. And if you don't have the values that make those norms that those norms are associated with, none of the story makes any sense. Yeah. Or it just frustrates the hell out of you. Yeah, you, you end up Why thinking... Why is this a problem? Like, go talk to this person and say the exact thing that you just said you're not currently allowed to say to them. Um... One topic I wanted to bring up was the interaction between others' privacy and honesty with someone else. Mm. Like, oh, yeah. like if you have a third, if you have a secret of a third party who you and your interlocutor are discussing. Right. So if I, if A tells me something in confidence, and now I'm interacting with B, and A's secret thing in confidence affects my interaction with B, maybe it affects my emotional state or some other aspect of that. How do you handle trying to talk about this with B? Yeah, I for me at least, um, I I don't follow the, the full version of this, but uh, one rule set I've seen is anything you tell me uh, might be said to someone else unless you like get me to confirm ahead of time that I will not. Um, and I do a slightly weaker version of this because I think. Uh, you ha to, for that to work well, you have to give everyone advance warning of that, who like ever might tell you something like that, um, which I just haven't. I haven't told everyone that thing. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I, tr it's one of the, another one of those things where I just try not to get myself in situations where I have to keep that kind of secret, and so. I try to make it very clear with the person whose secret it is whether like they 
really need me to not repeat it to anyone else. And uh, I try to be careful with how many secrets I have to keep. Because uh, I, I ended up in a situation where um, I knew a thing about an acquaintance that someone else didn't want that acquaintance to know they'd said. Sorry, this, this is really hard to say without labels. Person A had told me a thing about person B. Um, this affected my like desire to like be in like friendship with person B, but I couldn't say why because person A didn't want me to say that. To, didn't want person B to know that person A had said that because that would damage their relationship. Uh, and this is a really uncomfortable situation to be in, and I mostly just solved it by I don't talk to person B very much anymore, which sucks. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a hard problem. A scenario, I guess I could just say this. I was trying to, like, be coy about it earlier. I don't think, I know none of my family members listen to this, and it doesn't matter. Uh, I was talking on the phone with my dad recently, and he just slipped to me, oh, by the way, your sister's pregnant. Oh, wait, uh, she wanted to be the one to announce that. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to tell anybody. And it, I'm laughing because I'm like, well, now I know where I get it. First of all. <laughs> I like to just tell people, don't tell me secrets because I will blurt them out. <laughs> like, I don't remember in the moment that, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's hard to keep track of yeah. all that stuff. And I think, the thing is, I think most people are this way. There's probably some people who are just naturally good liars who have really good theory of mind or whatever, but, like, most people actually suck at telling lies and <laughs> keeping secrets. Yeah, I think one and, thing that... Uh, maybe isn't acknowledged as much as it ought to be is like there is a decent social cost to telling someone a secret and that you have now like burdened them with this potentially eternal responsibility to like have knowledge that they can't transmit to people and like even though it affects all sorts of other things that they do yeah right like i think one thing people should do is say like do you want to hear a secret oh and um just to finish the story about my sister so my dad's telling me that she's well you know um she's not sure yet so she didn't want to spread the news around but she's just having really bad morning sickness and i was like okay well um i just got on dance on the black market which is the best anti-nausea drug gray prescription market. only huh gray market at the gray market <laughs> Phoenix specifies i resemble that remark <laughs> canadianpharmacy.com or something this is inhousepharmacy.vu which is also where i get my cipro okay <laughs> so i was like well, now I have this drug that I could offer my sister that would... I've read uh, that it's used off-label for morning sickness and seems to work quite well. Is, is it Cat A? In order to give it to her, I would have to tell her that my dad told me <laughs> the thing that she didn't want him to say. Like, it's... A, it's not, I don't think it's scheduled. It's a... What is, what is Cat A? a pregnancy category. category. Oh. It's not. Um, I think that there's not enough data on it. It's using pregnancy for them to prescribe it that way, but that's, I think, why it's used off-label. I don't think that they've observed any adverse effects. According to Wikipedia, there are no known negative effects from it with pregnancy, but it's not very well studied. Okay. um, Category B, apparently. No risk in non-human studies. So that's reassuring to some extent. 
Yeah, but that's like... The kind of thing that I would like my sister to choose for herself, to have that option. But now, like, I can't. <laughs> Phoenix was suggesting I just send her an envelope. It's <laughs> <laughs> a child in like... I know your secret. <laughs> Just write an anonymous letter. Yeah, like, of course, somebody's going to really trust an uh, anonymous letter full of like, <laughs> full, full of pills. pills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take this. <laughs> Sign uh, it like someone who wasn't supposed to be told. <laughs> as far as the, the, the burdens of, uh, of confidences like that, my general policy is to be at least reticent about sharing something that my model of the person wouldn't write a blog post about. And, but if I've heard someone, if I've heard the person divulge the same fact to more in the presence of more than three people or after telling me to at least one other person that I, I sort of treat that as the commons. Mm -hmm. I think that's reasonable. Yeah. I, I think my standard is generally like, if I think that sharing, like if it's sensitive enough that sharing it might realistically cause some kind of like social or other kind of harm to the person whose secret it is. I try to just ask that person, can I share this? Uh, and because trying, trying to like keep a lot of secrets automatically by default is just so constraining in what I can say. And the, the mental load of it is pretty high as well, especially if you have multiple people in your life who know or don't know specific restricted things about each other. Keep the, the table of, me of that meta knowledge is really hard to hold in memory. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I, I wanted to ask one other thing for like while ev everyone's here. Um, well, so we agreed that probably front loading all of the negative, the undesirable aspects going into a or in a new relationship, um, maybe divulging all of the bad things instantly is not the best idea. Where where does that go in when you're pursuing a new one? Someone you who is as far as you know not aware of your interest. What what do people think would be a good is a good policy there? Um, so when you say if they're not like aware of your interest, are you talking about telling them that you like them or telling them negative or possibly negative things about yourself? Uh, both right now. Okay. Well, those are kind of, two I mean, they're, they're, questions. they're separate questions uh, and I'm, I'm, I'd be interested to hear about either one. That's, that's more useful. I've made a habit of just telling people that I like them and the, it's like, Hey, no pressure or like to go out or anything, but like, I think you're cute. And if you'd ever did want to go for a date, I'd be down for that. And that has worked pretty well. Um, and I think that some of that though, is that I still, um, present female and probably am less threatening than somebody who presents male might be. <clears throat> so, uh, I know that that might be difficult for some people to do and it took me a while to be able to do it. And it does really hurt being rejected, too. The first few times I tried this, uh, the person was just like, oh, okay, thanks like for telling me. And then I was like, so that's a no, right? <laughs> I still haven't heard whether it was a yes or a no. Uh, but you do it enough times, and then like you get yeses sometimes. And that balances it out. Uh, it it I've I've seen I've had I've had like internal questions about that in the rejection direction as well. 
Um, I've had one rejection ever that was completely intellectually satisfying in the extent that I was aware, I, I was made aware of the other person's reason. And while I disagreed mm. with it, I didn't find the need, like I, I was not compelled to dispute or probe further. Um, <laughs> when I was in college and I had started on nootropics and uh, the person I went out with was a nursing student and they, uh, we, we had conversation about that and they talked about their job and I talked about the nootropics stuff that I was interacting with at the time and the explanation that I got was I greatly enjoyed this date but your but this thing that you do seems like a reckless willingness to self-medicate that makes me doubt you as a partner and on mm. the one hand yeah that kind of I mean that that definitely hits close to home I but I and I disagree with it but that's also a real reason and I was yeah that's a like that was a great. That's a good signal that you might not uh, get along anyway. I mean, on the other hand, someone that honest about that sort of thing, I probably could have gotten along with, which made it kind of meta frustrating. Yeah. But yeah, I was gonna say I really appreciate that response. <laughs> which hers or hers? I uh, the uh, hers in that it was that's a that's the kind of response I always want to that kind of thing. Mm, yeah. Of like actually honest and informative, and like possibly actionable. Yeah. Yeah, I feel yeah, that's right. Um I don't think I've ever gotten a rejection that was that was the real reason why they were rejecting me and that was always a bit frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I don't I feel like if I were in the rejecting position of this, I would I would want to sort of ask for consent or something like I can give you a more brutally honest version, but I feel like someone might feel compelled to say, "Well, yes, I want to hear the truth even if maybe they don't." Maybe this is mm. a baseless worry, but... Yeah, because that's kind of on them if they've said yes, and then they can't handle the truth while they said yes. Yeah. But, uh... I feel like... I don't know. I it, would be surprised if someone said, bit... no, I don't want to hear it. Hmm. That's actually a, a hack that I use pretty often that I really enjoy of... Especially if I, if I think something is going to be a bit uncomfortable for someone to hear, I ask them if they want to hear it and provide enough kind of categorical information for them to be able to like to make some reasonable kind of decision and mostly what I what this seems to get me is that almost every time the person says yes but they have the choice to say no and then if they say yes because they had the choice uh, they then no longer feel like this is being forced upon them at least as much uh, and this tends to result in people responding to uncomfortable honesty much better. Yeah, that, I was going to bring that up. Um, hanging around Phoenix has helped me also pick up this habit of doing the, would you like to hear some data about me? Uh, or would you like to hear some feedback about something that might be hard for you to hear right now? Yeah. Um, asking before divulging stuff when you get the sense that it might be awkward, I think is a really good way to deal with a lot of the discomfort of radical honesty in general. Yeah. And sometimes my answer is like, I'm in emotional distress right now. Let's try again in an hour. Yeah. Or sometimes <laughs> you're, even sometimes you watch the person and they're like, uh, yeah. And you're like, are you sure? And then yet you think about it and you're like, well, maybe not right now. Well, or sometimes I've said, yes, but can you be very gentle and kind? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe sandwich it with some compliments or something. I've, I've offered uh, people a, uh, do you want a socially acceptable version that won't give you anything useful? Do you want 
something actionable, but where I'm taking care not to still taking some care not to hurt your feelings, or do you want unfiltered stream of consciousness? I like that. <laughs> I I like that, and also you said it quickly enough that I forgot parts of the yeah. list. Can you say that again, slightly slower? Do you want a socially acceptable performative response that you won't give you any information you can act on? Do you want I'm uh, a response where I'm trying to give you actionable information that may upset you, but will still go out of my way not to just hurt your feelings? Or do you want unfiltered stream of consciousness? I like that. I like that too. I also um, often try to encourage people to do unfiltered stream of consciousness when I think they're uh, filtering themselves too much around me. I think that's another uh, a benefit of being in a relationship with someone who practices radical honesty. Is like telling people, I won't hold it against you if you say something. Then you're like, no, wait, not that. Maybe this. Actually, <clears throat> let's just drop this whole thread. How about this other thing? Oh, wait, let's go back to that. Th like, that's the kind of conversation that I actually am fine with and enjoy. I think a lot of people model that kind of conversation as it's going to be too confusing or frustrating for the other person to listen to. Or, or that you have to absolutely stand by every statement that you make. Mm. <laughs> Even if like sometimes you blur stuff out and it comes... You're like, no, not, not, not like that exactly. Uh, it's the kind of thing I wish I could think of an example for. Yeah. Speaking of difficult um, relationship conversations, we've, start, we've talked about the beginnings of them and during them. But one thing that I've done when um, sometimes like a romantic partner will say like, oh, you know, can we talk about a somewhat serious thing? And then reassure me that it's not a breakup conversation. And I want to say like, no, wait, don't actually tell me that. Because then when it is, I'll be like, I will accidentally have been given this information at a time that I didn't actually want to hear it because you know, I'd rather hear that breakup conversation in a like prepared emotional state. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's this, that, that connects again with the like telling people things they want to hear kind of, kind of rule where I think like, uh, timing things so that like the person can actually receive it I think is pretty reasonable you just have to be careful to not uh, keep waiting forever for like the opportune time and then never actually saying it oh yeah one of the like finer arts <clears throat> of radical honesty is getting a sense of when people are more amenable to it like uh, I think Phoenix said I keep trying to have a rule where it's like we're not gonna do hard conversations after 11pm we keep failing at it but every time we do it's a bad idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you lose a lot of your kind of emotional processing tools and yeah i'm way more insecure after 11 p.m it turns out <laughs> i i i met a note i think read about like an hour and 10 minutes of a actual audio and uh we were maybe going to talk about sequence posts yes do we yes. want to start shifting over in that direction i uh, give people a chance to bring up any more important Here's a radical honesty topics. Yeah. Um, one short thing that does not work well in audio format to talk about at length, but which I think is worth a plug is that um, my favorite webcomic is called Subnormality and often features interesting complex characters having the sorts of genuine conversations with each other that one might imagine in a society of people who practice something like radical honesty. Um, if we can include a link to a, a comic called Subnormality Tells the Truth. I think this is maybe a has some interesting templates for like conversations that might not happen if people were quite as reticent as they often are in existing society. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, make a note of that. I just want to wrap up um, 
with this little, I had a segment of my notes about the relationship of radical honesty to rationality, where I think that um, this matters to me, I guess, as a rationalist, uh, because it kind of relates to that whole concept of guess versus ask culture. I forget if we've had an episode about that exactly, but I think we've talked about it, where rationalists tend to prefer the ask culture, um, where guess culture is more uh, the game theoretical, providing like plausible deniability excuses for why people might do things that'll help them always like signal correctly. Uh, it's costly, I think, in terms of, again, having to juggle a whole bunch of different threads of like what's true, what, what you're allowed to say is true, what things people have told you that are true but that you're not allowed to tell these people, but you can tell these people, like, yeah. Uh, the, I guess, uh, like, a core tenet of rationality is that the truth is good and it's good to pursue it. So, that, like, I don't know, um, how much I want to make that like a really strong moral imperative because again I do think that radical honesty is kind of it's a choice that works great for some people um probably people on the autism spectrum especially and I think um some people really dislike it and they really enjoy playing signaling games and that probably wouldn't be the best you know style of relationship for that kind of person and that's fine um Another thing is, like, I think the Slate Star Codex uh, surveys and maybe some other surveys have shown, like, rationalist values. They tend to have uh, openness, like, effective communication, and less regard for taboo traditions and signaling games in general. So those are kind of the reasons I brought it up. And I guess um, the other thing is just that rationality endorses this, like, idea of overcoming bias, which or, you know, learning not to lie to yourself uh, in order to be more effective and less internally conflicted. And I think that this can help you learn to do that internally and also applying that uh, in dialogue with others can also help you just be, uh, be less conflicted, <laughs> pursue your goals more directly, so forth and so on. As far as the, the signaling games and the, the filtering that goes on in a lot of normal social interaction, I would add that when I started attending physical rationalist events, I started to notice a lot of, more of my bad social habits and kind of got better at doing the baseline socialization because of it. I don't have... What do you mean? It's, I've had a hard time putting it into words, but uh, being in an environment where I wasn't getting any of the... Like, I, I get unconscious cues to do a lot of them, but historically I've been a lot of filtering and... Uh, sort of meta reasoning about the conversation as it's going on and the greater in the, the the greater emphasis on this authentic social interaction in rationalist circles caused me to notice what cues I wasn't getting anymore and I didn't notice mm. them when they were cues that I was getting constantly but I like the the stare that doesn't exist at the top of the staircase that you don't notice until you trip um, it, I only noticed it when it wasn't when I expected it and it wasn't there Hmm. What kinds of cues, out of curiosity? Uh, specific things that I would normally go out of my way to never disclose to someone I hadn't already, I wasn't already in a romantic relationship with. Um, oh. st like, 
I have had a life with a lot of interesting stories, and some of them are more interesting to certain types of people than others. And I definitely, I've gotten better to, to in some small way at uh, identifying those categories of people and targeting my interactions accordingly. Mm. It's it's been healthy. I'm definitely still not very good at it, but I've it's been been healthy to notice ways of getting better at it. I've I think felt oh, yeah. this too that like my my brain does some sort of default understanding of what are the norms here and then how much of myself do I have to like conceal or put filters around so that I fit in with those norms and that in rationalist spaces I can like basically just turn these filters off and sort of like not be projecting a version of myself that is be projecting a version of myself that is more honest not in the sense of like truths and falsehoods but in the sense of like what I would be like in the absence of social pressures to act otherwise I think it's maybe mm. carried back over to that like experiencing being in a more sort of safe environment to be myself lets me like um, express more of myself in the everyday world and be like oh you know I can just be a little bit weird and that's like alright yeah I think that's definitely one of the biggest psychological benefits for me for, of asker teleculture versus guest culture is something about the guest culture that I just wanted to comment on from your, your your three choices that you give people about what what kind of communication they want is the the first one of like socially acceptable performance response performative response uh, is that as soon as you give someone that as an option they can no longer do guest culture about it which is like if they would have chosen that now they have to explicitly choose it and that's like especially with the way it's phrased it's like obviously not socially allowed <laughs> and i think that this kind of thing can trip guest culture people up okay I, in a, i'm honestly a way that i just mostly find entertaining but <laughs> i still i might have to I, I should work on a rephrasing of that something like how much effort yeah. do you want to go into not working not into not hurting your feelings Oh. Yeah. Actually, I'm curious. What is the distribution of responses to this? Um, most people, I, I've, most people ask for the second one. I've gotten one request for the third one, and about three for the socially acceptable performative response, which I find really? trust me confused the crap out of me at the time. <laughs> huh. Because for for a reason that I didn't notice until Phoenix just put words to it, which is, yeah. Once you know that yourself. Uh, we're, we're getting to the sequence post, but there is a sequence post that points out once you recognize that an option is self-deceiving, you can't really enthusiastically pick it anymore. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't pretend to not be self-deceiving <laughs> by doing it. No, no, really. I've totally deceived myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that note, shall we move on to sequences? Let's do it. Um, our sequences this week are absence of evidence is evidence of absence and conservation of expected evidence. So absence of evidence. Uh, the sequence begins with a quote from Robin Dawes, Rational Choice in an Uncertain World. The quote talks about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Uh, when California Governor Earl Warren testified before a congressional hearing, a questioner pointed out there had been no sabotage or any other type of espionage by the Japanese Americans up to that time. Warren responded, 
I take the view that this lack of subversive activity is the most ominous sign in our whole situation. It convinces me more than perhaps any other factor that the sabotage we are to get, the fifth column activities are to get, are timed just like Pearl Harbor was timed. I believe we're just being lulled into a false sense of security. And by the way, uh, fifth column, I had to look that up. That's referenced a few times in the sequence. It's just a group of people who undermine a larger group from within. Uh, Eliezer says, consider Warren's argument from a Bayesian perspective. Where seeing evidence for something means we should give our hypotheses higher probability. Shouldn't the opposite also be true? Using Bayes' theorem, Eliezer lays out the math behind the Japanese-American sabotage question. Uh, he says, let E stand for observation of sabotage, uh, negation of E for no sabotage, H1 for the Japanese-American fifth column hypothesis, and H2 for the hypothesis that no fifth column exists. The conditional probability P of E given H is our confidence in E if H were true. A quote, whatever the likelihood that a fifth column would do no sabotage, the probability of P not E uh, with H1, uh, it won't be as large as the likelihood that there's no sabotage given that there's no fifth column. The probability of P of not E uh, given H2. So observing a lack of sabotage increases the probability that no fifth column exists. So he says, this doesn't prove no fifth column exists, but in probability theory, absence of evidence is always evidence. <laughs> absence of evidence is always evidence of absence. In real life, a cause might not reliably produce signs of itself, but the absence of a thing definitely won't produce any signs. And at the end, Eliezer brings up the fallacy of the gaps in the fossil record. Pointing out that because fossils form very rarely, it's futile to trumpet the absence of a weakly permitted observation when so many other strong positive observations already are recorded. In that same vein, uh, if there are no positive observations at all, then it might be time to worry, so hence the Fermi paradox. And he ends this by reiterating, your strength as a rationalist is your ability to be more confused by fiction than by reality. If you're equally good at explaining any outcome, you have zero knowledge. I forget if this was the first time he ever actually, like, I, I feel like this was a quote that was in a previous sequence or somewhere else, but, uh, I might be misremembering just because I remember the quote so strongly, and I didn't remember that it belonged to the sequence. I, I think this is the earliest use of that particular quote, uh, or is, is the noticing confusion post earlier in the original sequences than this one? He definitely talks about noticing confusion a lot. Yeah, I just don't know if it was this, this, like... Your strength as a rationalist is your ability to be more confused. Maybe because I heard it in Methods of Rationality first. Mm. Yeah, because the, the, uh, the Harry's conversation with Professor Quirrell in Diagon Alley references this and a couple of other very Yudkowsky things. And the, mm. the thing which, in, the, in that vein, reading the quote from uh, Governor Warren that, I, that uh, was in support of the internment made me think, I can't believe this! You can't have every possible observation confirm your theory. <laughs> uh, <Yeah>. Some quick <laughs> Google foo suggests that the sentence, your strength as a rationalist is your ability to be more confused by fiction than reality, um, than by reality, was first made by Elias Yudkowsky in a less wrong post two days prior. So this is part <laughs> of a sequence okay. about, this, about this notion, but it is not literally the first post. So you might have discussed it on, like, the Probably. previous episode or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I want to say that there's also a footnote at the end of this one where he says, if any of this sounds confusing, see my discussion of Bayesian updating towards the end of The Machine and the Ghost, the third volume of Rationality from AI to Zombies. So I'll put a link to that too. Um. I guess uh, the, the main thing I see here uh, that I take out of this is that uh, lack of evidence for something when contextualized where like if you're doing something that you would expect to generate evidence for this thing if it existed and you're like generating a bunch of other evidence about other things and like you keep not seeing evidence for a particular thing I think that like that hole being there sort of like shows up in the shape of data points around it and that shape is evidence of the thing not being there I, um, I think it depends on um, on sort of how much, how far the hypothesis is sticking its neck out about a particular piece of evidence. Like, until the LIGO detected gravitational waves, we had an absence of that particular evidence for general relativity, but we had a whole bunch of other evidence for general relativity that meant that the absence of this extremely unusual phenomenon shouldn't be taken as strong evidence against. But when we did finally observe it, this is something that's blindingly improbable by under any other theory of physics that we know about. So it's a strongly predicted rather than the, the absence of the detection was weakly, was a weakly permitted negative evidence and the eventual detection was a strongly predicted positive evidence. One, yeah. One, one lens that I think is useful in thinking about this is sort of imagining possible worlds. And so if we have a world in which there is, um, no, um, no subterfuge by um, by Japanese Americans, and one in which there is there is this sabotage. Then, sort of, if you run all these possible worlds together, every passing day that you don't see any sabotage is one where some of the worlds where there is sabotage are inconsistent because in some of those worlds the sabotage had already happened than you had noticed. And so, as time goes by and you see none of this occurring, um, each of those, all of the more and more of the worlds in that universe where this hypothesis is true are sort of dying off and being ruled out from consideration while none of the ones where it isn't happening um, are being invalidated. So the pool of your hypothesis mm. space that is taken up by this hypothesis is false um, grows over time. And uh, one other thing on reflection, and I think this comes up in the comments on this post, but I haven't read the comments for a while. Um, although Governor Warren probably didn't know the reason, there was intelligence to suspect the existence of organized possible sabotage at the time, but not stuff they could talk about publicly. So this also, there's also an issue here where they're trying, there's some really motivated reasoning here trying to point whoever is listening to what Warren is saying in the direction of believing something that they know for what's not the real reason they believe it. Yeah, I was going to bring up <clears throat> the motivated reason, uh, motivated reasoning in politics, because uh, Eliezer's kind of writing these as advice to general people, and then here's an example of somebody doing the bad thing but uh the problem i have with some of the sequences and trying to get people who aren't already bought into it or in the rationality community to see that this stuff is important is some of these are just ideas that if you said them are going to be really obvious on their face like the idea that if there's no evidence for something <laughs> then maybe that thing is, doesn't exist like if you tried to tell that to somebody as though it were a revelation they'd be like well yeah no shit but then uh, but in, apparently this got 
this governor can like make this speech and people can be like, yeah, that is suspicious that there's been no sabotage. There's probably going to be sabotage. Yeah, and I, I think that getting the full point of this post requires the context of a thing that is often said otherwise in sort of the scientific community, I guess, that uh, the opposite claim of this title, that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And, and I think that that is true outside of the context of doing things that you would expect to generate evidence. That, that particular one, I, I, I get the sense that, um, although I, I think technical limitations would have prevented you from actually doing it, that the is should be italicized or bold-faced because people do mm. fall back on that frequently in discussions ranging from religion to alternative medicine to all sorts of other stuff. Um, yeah. That the, the fact that there's no evidence in either direction is a license to believe the specific thing. Right. And no, the fact that there's evidence that we should be, that should be easy to find and we don't have any evidence is, in fact, weak evidence of absence. Ab the, the, like he says, absence of proof is not proof of absence, but absence of evidence is evidence of absence. Right. Or evidence is, in the sense, is like, you should update your probabilities at least a little bit. Yeah. Like, not necessarily a lot. It is, it is the case that the amount that you update when you don't see the thing can be much smaller than the amount that you update when you do see the thing. You know, if, if, I'm, right. want, if I ordered pizza and I want to know if it will arrive, every passing second that I don't see the pizza delivery van probably only makes my probability that it has not arrived go up by a very minuscule fraction each second. But if there's a second that comes by when I do see it, then my probability probably goes up to 99.99% unless there are pizza van impersonators driving around my town. <laughs> well, that sounds like the mother well, of all example. segues into the next step, into the next post. I was hoping that somebody would do that. Uh, conservation of expected evidence. Uh, and this one, Eliezer starts talking about a priest named Fred, I'm gonna say this terribly, so I'm just gonna say Frederick Spee von Langenfeld. Spee. Spee. Friedrich Spee von Langenfeld. Yeah, well, I guess that's it. You heard the confession of condemned witches and described the decision tree for accusing condemned witches. If the witch has led an evil and improper life, she was guilty. If she had led a good and proper life, this too was proof for witches to assemble and try to appear especially virtuous. After the woman was put in prison, if she was afraid, this proved her guilt. If she was not afraid, this proved her guilt, for witches characteristically pretend innocence and wear a bold front. And the quote goes on. <laughs> Eliezer points out, Shpey was in the unique position to act as a confessor to many witches, so he was able to observe every branch of the accusation tree, but in any individual case, you would only hear one branch of the dilemma, so its one-sidedness might not have been as obvious. He goes back to the rule that absence of evidence is evidence of absence, and says you can't have it both ways. Uh, you would call the more general law that this falls under conservation of expected evidence. The expectation of the posterior probability after viewing the evidence must equal the prior probability. Therefore, for every expectation of evidence, there's an equal and opposite expectation of counter evidence. Or, on average, you should expect <coughs> to be exactly as confident as when you started out. So, if, like the governor in the previous post, you claim no sabotage is evidence for the fifth column hypothesis, you also have to believe seeing sabotage is an argument against a fifth column. And the same he says for arguing, a good and proper life is evidence that someone's a witch, or that God hides his existence to test humanity's faith. At the end, 
He asserts it's impossible for a Bayesian to seek evidence confirming a theory because you can't expect your confidence at a fixed proposition to be higher than before. Or I guess you might say you can't control how confident you feel. You can only look for evidence to test a theory. I'm a bit confused by the statement that you should be the same amount of confident before and after. Do you understand that? So, well, I guess your confidence equals 100%. The, the way that I see this is, like, if I, if I know that in 10 minutes I'm going to see some evidence, you know, the lab results are going to come back, that my confidence in the hypothesis right now should be equal to what I expect my confidence to be, the average confidence that I expect to have in 10 minutes, which maybe currently it's 50%, and in 10 minutes I think there's um, a two-thirds chance it'll be 60%, and a one-third chance that it'll be 30%, assuming that I have done my multiplication <laughs> right, um, but that the on average um, I should not expect that my confidence would change, because if I could forecast my future beliefs, then I would just now believe whatever I thought I would believe in the future on average. Yeah, since one of the classical ways of introducing people to Bayes' theorem is the test for a disease that's got some prevalence in the general population and the test is X percent accurate, um, there's, a good, there's a pretty good chance, given whatever accuracy of the test, that the positive result means actual infection and there's a pretty good chance that a negative result means no actual infection. But the, when you, if you run this on everyone, the probability that... You're still going to end up with exactly the general population prevalence of the disease. That probability is not affected by your testing it. Okay. Yeah, that 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 much makes sense. Yeah. Uh, explains this realization can take a load off your mind, because then you don't have to worry about how to interpret facts anymore. <laughs> and ends with human psychology is so screwed up. <laughs> I think. Which actually, yeah. I remember kind of... Oh, uh, go ahead. I think I can sometimes utilize this a little bit to make myself be a little bit more rational and do something like, okay, I query my brain as to what I expect to think in five years about this decision. And if my expectation of what, I th of what future wiser me thinks about this is different than what I currently think, then maybe I try and update on what current me thinks to more closely resemble the future version of me that I think has better information. Like, sometimes I think my brain is better at forecasting what I will believe in the future than it is at accurately having an appraisal of what probability I should assign to something now. Although I feel like in the spirit of this, you would have to then sort of also have the future you that was wrong and become both of them. Yeah, like, <laughs> I think sometimes I can say, like, I think maybe half of all future me's think this is a bad decision and half of them think it was a good decision, so I probably shouldn't be 90% confident it's good right now. I should really only think it's 50%. Oh, yeah. Sure. Uh, this reminds me of the practice of doing a pre-mortem, where you're trying to come up with a plan, and then you're like, okay, so I think this plan is going to work for these reasons, but if I imagine in the future uh, the plan has failed, what happened? it can be easier to conceptualize it that way and then you can kind of go back to the present and alter your plan. That that kind of... In such a way as to take into account the uh, things that went wrong. Yeah, I think sort of... It, it, this is another theme of maybe your brain is trying to lie to you sometimes about um, things that it would like to believe and so, you know, you're starting this project and you're, you know, parts of your brain are all very excited and are telling you that nothing can possibly go wrong but the part of your brain that looks into the future or conditions on things having gone wrong 
hasn't quite gotten this memo. And so if you can ask other parts of your brain, then you can maybe circumvent the parts that are trying to give you confirmation bias and update your probabilities in ways that are not truth-seeking. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of another thing that's tangentially related, but uh, when earlier we were talking about radical honesty and poly, I was remembering that we haven't done this yet, but uh, Phoenix and I heard in the Multi-Amory podcast, which uh, I'm also going to plug, about the idea of doing a relationship, uh, what was it called? A, a breakup agreement. Yeah. It was when we were talking about earlier in this discussion uh, how you break the news to someone that you want to break up with them. I like the idea of we have a breakup agreement where we will break up if these things become the case. And then that way that softens the blow and like you don't get to argue about it anymore if these things have become the case. Then you're like, well, we both signed this contract. If you know of a list of example breakup contracts, that sounds very interesting and I would find it cool to read. Yeah, I also want to read that. <laughs> that might exist. We might be able to find it and link it. That sounds constructive. Um, I'm also, I remember uh, during this podcast's polyamory episode uh, that Katrina took an opposite view on codifying things, or not opposite, took a different and specific disagreeing on the, at least the specific point view of codifying things like that, which may also be worth being exposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said that was just from a previous one of this podcast episodes yes um before okay. before jess was on uh steven Aniash and katrina did a two-part episode on polyamory and i can't remember which part this comes up in but uh katrina mentioned a more skeptical attitude toward codified rules on that sort of thing that may also be worth listening to i yeah. um generally endorse not having codified rules like um in regard to trying to think of an example like uh I c you, you can never come home like you can go on a date but you like can't come home uh after 11 p.m or something like that i think that there's like obvious failure modes for rules like that i think something like a breakup agreement i would say is uh the fact that both of you write it and that it's a living document um yeah i, I think i think ma yeah. makes it less that yeah. kind of thing the, i think I, I generally do agree with katrina's view on that yeah i think and the being updated makes it much more sort of healthy in that respect but anytime you make some kind of commitment like this in the long term you are in some sense saying I, there's a thing that i worry my future self will do and i want to i like sort of don't trust my future self's beliefs when they are trying to do this so in some sense you're sort of like you're distrusting some version of you with more information that has come to some new feelings or decisions. So that's like at least a thing to be wary of. Yeah, I, th I think the breakup agreement thing is is pretty categorically different from other kinds of rules and agreements in, in intimate relationships because uh, by its nature, it is like inherently unenforceable because you're ending the relationship. Um, and, I, and I think the point of them is is more just like, here's what I intend to do. Uh, and just like knowing that about each other can be, uh, at the very least, help you do a bit of planning, even if like you know that this kind of thing isn't enforceable, and can be something of a comfort in like knowing that this person intends to not just ghost you if they're gonna break up with you. Yeah, for example. That's fair. I I can see value there. It's it's not so much. It's not a pre-commitment that okay, if this happens, we're never gonna see each other again. It's okay if this happens, then 
my, I have the option that you can't protest to break off at that point as we've agreed, which is a different and more... I am more, a different, whole different paradigm to which I'm more sympathetic. Yeah, and not to get too far down this uh, admittedly interesting topic, but it's probably time that we thank a patron. Oh, yeah. We've been going for a bit. Uh, Phoenix, did you want to thank the patron? Yeah, I'm scrolling, scrolling down. Uh, we want to thank, thank Roman, who increased their donation from 4 to $5, which I'm going to interpret as meaning that the show has gotten at least 25% better than it was before. Yeah. I am going to go with that, too, because <laughs> that makes me feel good. Ooh. So thank you, Roman. Thank you, Roman. <laughs> and uh, does anybody have anything else they want to say before we sign off? Anything to plug? Also. Uh, let me scroll through my list of things to say. He's got quite a list. Um, Drake's ex- <laughs> Drake's expanded mind space has a, a, a file of these things. Uh, the remaining items on the list, I think, are not especially conversation worthy. I've gotten through most stuff. I'm good. Oh yeah, I was thinking about. I I forgot to look up uh, things that I'm just like temporarily calling honesty games. Uh, I don't know if there's an actual term for this kind of thing, but uh, like circling is kind of an honesty game. And I remembered another one, Hot Seat, which is neat. And I want to find more of these. And I wasn't prepared to have a list of them on this episode, but if I find a list, I'll share it somewhere. Also, maybe a solicitation for listeners to share good ones that they have played. And um, one one Discord community that I'm part of has uh, a thing that you can opt into uh, where someone elects to do an honesty hour where you just commit to answering questions that are thrown at you and right yeah you, i think that's basically hot seat but on discord okay so that's I'm, that I'm is into it. i think it's a good thing yeah okay uh, i feel like i had some things that i wanted to plug but i don't remember <laughs> i'll do it next time uh, I'm just you can always say. just edit your own voice in oh. later. Maybe oh, I did remember a thing I wanted to plug. <laughs> um, okay. This is only this is somewhat related to sort of difficulty of communicating romantic things to people, which is that reciprocity.io. Let me say that again with more enunciation. Oh, yeah. Reciprocity.io um, is a website in which you are shown all of your Facebook friends who also use this service, and two check marks: one for would you like to go on a date sometime, and one for do you want to hang out soon? And if you and the other person both check each other's respective boxes, you are notified. And so this is a thing where if everyone used it, like maybe 30% of all social dilemmas would have been solved. <laughs> yeah, I wish that there was a third one that was just has logged into reciprocity like within the past month. <laughs> yeah. Because my list is mostly full of people that I don't think ever check it. And I also often forget that it exists. They, but they do give you a chance now to... Now that you mentioned it. Yeah. Uh... Maybe, maybe this serves as a ping for anyone who is using it to go and update their checkboxes. Um, they give you the option to include a blurb, and mine always includes, I last logged in on this date. Nice. Oh, that's useful. I'm, I might have I to start that. doing that in some other places. I should do that on my Admonos box, too. Like, I last updated <laughs> my ad, this feedback solicitation on... Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Uh, All right. right. I think that that is all we have. 
<laughs> for this episode of the Bayesian Conspiracy. Also, I'm just like praying that when I click stop, Audacity does not crash. Oh yeah, I'm not touching any buttons until Gray comes over and makes sure that they're the right buttons to click. Yeah, I'm gonna cut our Audacity <laughs> recording at this point, so uh, just a second. Okay. <clears throat> All right. The thing to do is click stop and then save, right?